Welcome to the EIE Podcast. You're tuning in to episode number 58, and I'm your host, Laura Rumbly. The contemporary phenomenon of internationalization in higher education has been around for several decades now, but the question of how best to define it in ways that resonate meaningfully around the world remains contested. One of those individuals keen to push our thinking forward on this point is Simon Marginson. As many of our listeners will surely know, Simon is Professor of Higher Education at the University of Oxford, as well as Director of the Center for Global Higher Education, also known as CGHE. CGHE is an international research center built on a partnership of 10 UK and international universities, whose work is focused on various aspects of higher education in a global context and its future development. Simon has recently been contemplating the limitations of our reliance on some long-standing and widely adopted definitions of internationalization in higher education in the hope that new ways of imagining the phenomenon in all its complexity and nuance in 2023 can come to the fore. We caught up with Simon just before the holidays back in December, and I began by asking him what motivated him to focus on a deep questioning of the core definition of internationalization in higher education just now. Well, it wasn't motivated by ex external events, Laura. I, I've been thinking about this for quite a while. In fact, I've been meaning to write this paper for about two decades. Um, and I did write a short version of it and published it as a book chapter in 2007. But yeah, there are so many book chapters around that no one notices them. So it's <laughs> not without trace. But the thing that held me back a bit, I think, was that I wanted to engage properly with all the scholarships. So uh, in preparation for giving the webinar on this topic and, and also in preparing a journal paper, which I've currently got under review, I did read a great deal of what had been said about the definition of internationalization really since 1993, since Jane Knight began on that topic uh, and then all the subsequent uh, discussion by others who work with her and 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 also some of the criticisms. And that took me through really three decades uh, of reading. And I did that reading between June and August uh, this year. Wow, that's a, a very condensed period of time to delve into all of that literature. There has been so much that's come out on this yeah. topic. Um, you've mentioned Jane Knight's name. And of course, her definition of internationalization is largely considered to be the most widely a cited definition, um, enormous staying power and uptake mm. of mm. her language. In your recent paper, in your recent exploration of this definition of internationalization, you mentioned three specific flaws to her approach. Could you briefly explain to our audience what those three flaws are? Well, I think I should say as a preliminary to answering the question, uh, that I recognize the definition was of its time and it was a rich, although the most cited version is the 2003-2004 version, it really starts in 1993-1994. And it comes out of a proselytization of internationalization in Canada amongst tertiary institutions and, and with the cooperation of those who are very active in the field of international uh, dealings at that time, including parts of government. Um, so it reflects that practitioner focus and a practitioner focus early in the sort of what you might call the high globalization period, the 1990s, when everything was opening up and changing after the internet and the and the end of the Cold War. 
and the opening up of, of worldwide trade as well. All that was going on at the same time. So it reflects, I think, an attempt to bring internationalization forward among not only the practitioners themselves, but their institutions and into governments and so on. So it was a talking up. And I think in every country, there's a need to talk up internationalization. So I think we all probably agree with that. But being of its time, it, it, it wasn't able to anticipate all of the issues and problems that were going to arise in the next three decades. And I think they those issues become apparent in the first probably 15 years uh, and then have triggered a lot of debate. I think the three problems are these. One is that as a definition for practitioners, it's fairly ideological in its character, like it's trying to shape things uh, rather than being a simple sort of scholarly neutral descriptor. And at that time, there was a lot of concern about globalization as a kind of invasive force that was going to damage local and, 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 and national education systems that had the potential to push a kind of commercial free trade agenda through uh, the cultural and educational objectives of, of, of higher education programs. And, and as such, it was a defensive um, definition which said international, yes, glo globalization, no. And, and you know, let's focus on some, what we can control here. And bringing government into the picture, bringing nations into the picture was one way of trying to restrict the potentially damaging effects of globalization. Now, I can understand the motivation. I think the problem, though, was that globalization wasn't all bad. And there are a lot of ways in which the global was opening things up, especially outside the European American world. And in some respects, there were very positive things, you know, like the the greater communication between scholars and institutions across borders without having to go through nation states, the way in which global science evolved as a sort of free conversation between scientists worldwide, and that in the end has become the dominant form of knowledge. And, and just the, the freedom of movement, which was opening up for individuals and for institutions across borders. And so th that kind of positive agenda in globalization was worth supporting. And I think the definition sort of cut off the possibility of being positive and put everything back through the nation state. And the nation state was sometimes a constraint. And this has been increasingly obvious in the last 10 years, you know, nation state can be a real constraint on global openness and global exchange and global freedom. So, so there was the ideological problem. And, and as someone who's always seen globalization as both positive and negative, I, I was very aware of that right from the beginning, that, our concern was in us global people were wanting to advance a kind of positive education-centered rather than economic-centered approach to the global, global citizenship, global um, problems, solving global problems, those sorts of issues. And we saw the definition of getting in the way. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was, I think, something which everyone will recognize now, but perhaps wasn't immediately obvious in the 1990s. And that's the way it's, the definition is somewhat ambiguous. So that it includes some, some things we, many of us would not like to support, forms of internationalization, which have been retrograde. And the actual definition goes like this. It says, this is the 2003 version. Internationalization at the national sector and institutional levels is defined as the process of integrating an international, intercultural or global dimension into the purpose, function or delivery of post-secondary education. Now, that's, that's fine if you like the kind of form of, of international integration which is occurring. 
but the um, problem is that it took up also the commercial forms of internationalization and um, and forms of relationship between the Euro-American world and the and the developing world, which were retrograde and 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 uh, continue kind of a, a pattern of colonial domination. And you know these these sort of negative forms of of, of internationalization was something that Jane and others vigorously campaigned against, but they were sort of trapped by the fact that the definition was bringing with it all of this. And um, and of course, that's why it's on every website, every company likes it, you know, er everyone who's pursuing any kind of agenda in the international area can take comfort from Jane's definition. So it was a big tent. Too broad. Yeah. Too, too, and the third problem something which I don't think was immediately obvious to people in the Anglophone world, and I include in this myself, you know, it was, I think it has in the end been the most important problem with the definition. And that, that's the fact that it's not relational, that it's about our qualities, what we do, making us good people, without thinking about the effects on the other party. And as Jane herself pointed out, has pointed out, you know, international is about a relationship international between nations so what happens at the other end of the relationship is as important as what happens to us you know as, as whether we're virtuous people there's the question of is there a virtuous outcome for everyone else and of course the forms of internationalization which we in the anglophone world developed and proselytized vigorously and pursued vigorously have not always been a happy outcome for the non-english speaking world for the world where western civilization and Western culture has created internal tensions and conflicts with local and indigenous agendas and cultural forms. And I mean, the best thing about internationalization, of course, is that it's that by creating these relationships, we then start to negotiate, you know, mixed and hybrid forms of culture. We start to learn from each other and we start to have a two-way flow. And, and, and that at the best of times, that's what happens. But I don't think that the definition was pointing us in that direction. It was really focusing just on our own qualities. And of course, the pushback against the definition has largely come from, you know, the global East, the global South. You know, it's been from Latin America, from Africa, from East Asia, has been and Southeast Asia. There's been a lot of criticism of the definition as essentially reinforcing rather than uh, opposing or opening up for scrutiny the old Anglo-American hegemony in higher education. Okay, so some very, very fundamental concerns then, that false dichotomy between international and global, yeah. the overly broad tent that allows in the, the negatives that we wouldn't want to see, and then the um, the one-directional nature of yeah, the definition right. rather that's than... A, the... That's a good word. Yeah, one-directional. Great. Yeah. Okay, that, that helps clarify your, your position on that. So in looking at those very uh, serious issues... You determined that Jane's definition of internationalization in higher education really isn't revisable. And I think a quote here is the old definition has to go. So where does that leave us? In your view, how do we begin to shape a new and better definition for internationalization? Well, you know, it's been interesting how people have been approaching the problem because they have been approaching the problem. Jane herself, Hans DeWitt, you know, others with goodwill have been trying to tackle these issues for a while now. And they've veered between different approaches, but one approach has been, of course, to try and revise the definition to put some of this back in. 
to sort of sort it, perhaps to make it more narrow, excluding the retrograde commercial exploitative practices by adding references to social responsibility and 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 good and quality and you know these sort of more positive education and knowledge centered values. And another approach has been to say, okay, let's say the end of internationalization, you know, we've reached the point where this is no longer working. And that, of course, was the title of a famous article in 2011 on the problems of the definition. And I think I think the big step is to say we're not going to try and devise a universal definition for everyone else. You know, we're not going to try and impose a, a Euro-American definition on the system as a, on the system of higher education and knowledge as a whole. Uh, we're not going to we, we continue to try to be, if you like, world leading on this. And I think that's that's the big step which we in the Euro-American world need to take. Uh, if we're going to be serious about moving beyond the, the age of co- colonialism, post-colonialism and hegemony, you know, it's, it's to say, okay, let's talk about the principles that should govern the way we relate to each other, how we respect each other. And I think a lot of people in internationalization in the Western world want to do this. You know, there's, there's sincere, a genuine commitment to devising a more equitable higher education world. And, and part of the reason for that is because in the last 30 years of internationalization and globalization, when things have really opened up in many countries, and um, there's been tremendous development of higher education and of research and scholarship outside the West. I mean, not only in, of course, the spectacular examples, uh, you know, China, Singapore, Korea, uh, and Japan was already there for some time. Southeast Asia, Malaysia as well, and Thailand and other systems. But also we're seeing this in Latin America with a new confidence about Spanish and Portuguese language scholarship and cooperation and, you know, a long period of democracy and peace in Latin America much, in much of the continent has, has really um, strengthened higher education long term, I think. And we are seeing all the signs of, of you know, of, of new agency in Africa in different countries and the cooperation at the African level is significant and in the Middle East as well. So, and India. So. And, you know, in many ways, we've seen this strengthening of higher education worldwide, partly because of internationalization. It's been one of the sources of that strengthening process. But it means that everyone's ready to strut on their own, on their own behalf now. I mean, they don't really need the help that we thought we had to provide from the Euro-American world. And it's time for us to start to learn as well as teach. And um, I think being willing to do that means stepping away from trying to leave the universal and instead talking about talk about relationships talk about how to sort the world in a more equitable way that you know highly multilateral perspective and multidimensional perspective is really exciting to think about and uh it's um, a point of optimism i think that we can dwell on which is very very nice I'd like to move us a little beyond definitions for a moment and touch base with you regarding these real world realities uh, in policy and practice, which I think are very much evident in the discussion that you've been having around a new definition for internationalization. Just to pick your brain a little bit, as you look out across the world of higher education, as you kind of just talked us through a moment ago in your comments, what excites you about the possibilities of internationalization and globalization as you understand those phenomena today? And what are some of the major worries or concerns that you have? Good questions. And uh, I think the exciting thing is that the global opening up really did work. And I think that, you know, it was, it's an interesting when you think back to the 90s, you know, that this was an Americanized globalization. And um, it's a bit, well, perhaps in university sector, Anglophone, but primarily US led. 
and uh, and the US shape. And a lot of good things came out of that. What I'd itemize as good in this instance is the open regime on knowledge and the, the sort of bottom-up approach to collegial cooperation across borders using the internet, which was a very much an American, open American university phenomenon in the early days. So that you had this sort of US faculty culture with its prejudice against government interference and its, you know, its commitment to sort of professional community and, and local localism and strong local base. You know, had that that perspective entered into the way the internet evolved and the way in which science and knowledge evolved and spread at a global level. And that created a tremendously open global setting with the very significant reservation, of course, that it's all in English. Right. So Exactly. Being Anglophone, it also was culturally exclusive. So uh, that was the downside. But the, the, the upside was the openness and the way in which it helped to build capacity. And in the internet, uh, as it turned out, it was different to, to uh, multilateralism, different to government-to-government relationships. The open internet with, with everyone a node in the internet was one in which new players could come in and connect to anyone else in the system without going through the big gatekeepers you know, without going through the big countries or the big universities. You know, university in Kazakhstan could connect to university in Chile and it would work. And those those kinds of horizontal periphery to periphery relationships uh, really built and uh, probably the fastest growing area of science cooperation has been periphery to periphery. So in that environment, local bases free to not, to, not subordinating themselves to the big players all the time, free to develop. And higher education, to a lesser extent, functioned the same way, more dependent on government financing, of course. But essentially, higher education in every country has been able to, if it's been had the, had the commitment to development, has been able to develop and freely. And that's different to the pattern of economic and modernization, say, in the pre-global period, when it was much harder for emerging countries to emerge and to develop and break out of the sort of dependency shell. So in the global environment of the 90s and onwards, less dependency, intrinsically less dependency. And I think that's borne fruit now in state building in much of the world, um, outside the Euro-American world, you've got successful building of modern economies and modern states. Not in every country. There's probably about a quarter of all countries that are still very, very poor, are still in a situation because they're very poor of dependency, are still vulnerable to high levels of manipulation by donors, for example, in foreign aid. But there's a significant group, probably about half of the nations in the world, which have been more free to develop, not less. And higher education and, and scholars and knowledge have also been free to develop. So that's the exciting part. It could all change, but as I'm about to say in a minute, but up to now anyway, in the last 20 years or so, especially a tremendous flourishing of agency around the world, which is one of the reasons why we can't continue to imagine that this will always be an Anglophone or, a, or an Anglo-European higher education world. It, it won't. It's already not. And one of the things we're going to have to open up is language and, and start operating on a multilingual basis rather than insisting that everything should be in English and so on. So that's the upside, I think. The pluralization of capacity and um, the tremendous lift in, in, in human society that, that you know, the, the growth of higher education constitutes all over the world with 40% uh, participation and, um, uh, you know, the school leaver age group worldwide and, and with, the, with about 70 countries now where you've got more than half of the school leaver age group uh, staying on to tertiary education with perhaps half of them eventually graduating with degrees so 
you know, this is tremendous uplift in human capacity. It really puts the massive in massification. <laughs> you know, oh, when yeah, you say yeah. some of those. I mean, it hasn't always been, statistics. you know, it's beautiful. You know, it, yeah. a lot of mass education everywhere, including in the advanced um, systems, the Euro-American world and, and Japan and so on, is, is still not good enough. Yeah. You know, quality is by no means uniform, as we all know. Systems are often highly stratified resource-wise as well as status-wise. And when you look to countries like India, where, you know, they've achieved 30%, almost 30% participation, there are huge areas of participation which are still really kind of low resourced and so on. So, you know, nominal participation in the data doesn't always mean high quality education is being received. So there's all those issues and problems, but still it's a, a great improvement on what we had before. The downside is that the geopolitics is getting very tough. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is something of a closing up again of the global openness that we've had in the 90s and onwards. Uh, not only the US-China problem, which is very profound, you know, the kind of splitting of the world between the two, but also um, a more tense military and security environment in many countries. And that is going to bear down more heavily in the future, I think, on higher education's freedoms and on the freedoms of movement across borders uh, and certainly on the free flow of knowledge as well. So the great opening up and building of plural capacity that we've seen may well start to reverse or at least not continue to 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 grow so they're the problems we face and us china is a big a big worry because they're such important countries both of them and they've got such big contributions each of them you know to make and them working together for 30 years was fabulous you know it was totally different civilizations you know in many respects talking to each other learning from each other we hope but i think the flow was too much one way you know it was too much china learning from the us not much us learning from china and china's got a lot to a lot to tell us about human society and about education and knowledge. And East Asia is probably the strongest zone of education in some respects in the world in terms of, you know, the quality of students coming out of school and going into tertiary education is probably higher in terms of educational preparation than anywhere else in the world. So, you know, we, we've had quite a bit to learn from, from, from East Asia. And I think that possibility is now being cut off. So constructive relationship seems to have been set aside on both ends and, you know, you've got this standoff developing and separate technologies, separate um, separate science, maybe uh, longer term. That's all very worrying and not good for internationalization, whatever definition we use. Exactly. Yeah, very, very heavy burdens, those geopolitical developments and so far out of our control, it seems, um, which oh, yes. is a hard part of, the, of that story as well. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because I think that maybe higher education institutions could be more autonomous than they are, than they feel like they have to be. I mean, I know we're all nested in the state. I mean, that's even in the US, you know, everyone in the end is, whether it's um, culturally or directly politically, is controlled by, by the consensus around the state and its policies. But I think there is scope for scholars, for teachers, for stu students to maintain good links across borders. I mean, a good example is what we do about Ukraine and Russia. I mean, I mean, once the the, the Russian university rectors all signed up to Putin's war and said, we, we endorse this special military operation. We couldn't really have official dealings with those universities. They were, you know, they'd put themselves outside the normal international relationships. But I don't think that meant that we stopped dealing with individual students and scholars and researchers. And in fact, it's very important to maintain those links. And um, I do think that we should uh, explore the potential of our autonomy, which is real in the sector, and, and try and maintain all these links as well as possible between China and the US and so on. So 
which isn't to endorse everything that each country does, you know. I mean, if we were going to refuse to deal with countries on the basis of their of their record, I mean, um, we would all know, stand alone. There wouldn't be many. I mean, we would all be talking to Finland, but not, but no one else. You know? Exactly, exactly. Maybe New Zealand. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not certain. As an Australian, I know about New Zealand's <laughs> dark side, so I'm not sure about that. But uh... exactly. Well, um, indeed, I, I think these are really important issues for us to think about and, and really um, powerful ideas to chew on for some time. Looping or closing the loop here on a discussion of, of definitions of internationalization, I was curious about the extent to which this effort to really kind of move us toward a new definition that might serve a broad community is a part of your ongoing scholarly agenda or if um, through your recent efforts in this area, your plan is more to kind of open the door on a broader conversation to invite others in to push this forward. Well, certainly, I mean, I think, you know, all these things work on the basis of conversation and none of us have all the answers, that's for sure. And then, as you know, you know, the longer you go in this in this work, probably the, the, the more you learn, but also the more you realise that you don't know and that, that you learn from others. And uh, and you, you become less normative and ideological, I think, uh, hopefully, and and more open, I think, to uh, to discussion and learning. And I'm I'm quite sure that many many good people, and I've learned from from people across this conversation, have a big contribution to make to this discussion. But I think what's motivating me increasingly at this stage of my career is I think we in the anglophone world, especially. I mean, we are responsible for the way the world is, as more than anyone else is. We've had the power for 200 years. This is our world It's with its problems. This is our power system and it's our ecology. And there are mighty responsibilities we carry to rethink and readdress and remake in conjunction with others. And, uh, you know, not our obligation to fix up the ecosystem, which is profound and which goes back to our, you know, essentially capitalist way of, organizing the economy, uh, which is, a, a, you know, capitalism has been above all in the contemporary era, a Anglophone product, you know, it's been it's been a product of brilliant minds like Adam Smith, who've come out of the Anglophone tradition and um, been sustained by their, their financial, the financial institutions of the US and especially UK and others uh, over over 200 years. So we've got a tremendous obligation there, which I think many of us are, are, are very well aware of. But there's also the same obligation to rethink worldwide power in relation to knowledge and higher education as well, to make it more plural, to to step back, to learn and to learn from others, but but to share with others the reconstruction process, to think about devising relationships in higher education which will be genuinely more plural, more multilingual, and so on. And that's a big job, and because it unlearning habits, and so I think that it's it's in a sense turning the critical lens back on our own societies and our own excellent higher education systems as they often are but not excellent in all the ways we want them to be excellent uh, as yet it's it's that's that's very motivating for me and as sitting at the university of oxford i'm so aware you know of the power of institutions like my own and i have great respect for their capability but you know it would be great to see that capability turned in a larger direction you know i mean it's sometimes those really big moves you know have come from the anglophone world you think of wilson's doctrine of national sovereignty and independence and po which essentially is post you know it previews the the transition from neo-colonialism to post-colonialism 
and decolonization, he starts that process in some respects. I think of Roosevelt's policy in, in, in the social and economic domain, so much more humane, so much more egalitarian than what was there before it. You know, these big moves can come from uh, the Anglophone countries too. And at its best, France has, has been a, a really important country in terms of good, you know, new principles by which we can all live our lives. Um, Germany, perhaps post-fascism, has been a, a beacon of enlightenment, you know, in many respects. And then cautious, yes, but, you know, its approach to both domestic and foreign policy, you know, really quite different to the history of Germany prior to that. So it shows you what, you know, these, these, these hegemonic countries can do at their best, but also I think that it means giving space to other voices. You know, and willingness to learn, and as a, as well as as well as uh, as as teach, and um, and that means opening the door to other civilizations and other traditions, and thinking about the world in a more, I suppose, multilateral way, in genuine multilateral way, which where it isn't just nominal equality of everyone, but it's real equality. It is a big world of ideas out there, a big world of challenges and opportunities. And in a few short minutes, we have covered a lot of ground in all of those areas. And it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Simon, for spending some time with us and talking us through these thoughts and issues that have been on your mind. You know, it's been really nice to do the interview today. And, and, and I've got great affection for you know, international higher education in Europe. I just think the principles on which Europe has operated in our sector, the principles of, um, you know, free movement, of a shared space, of a commitment to greater cooperation over time, of learning from each other, of being multilingual, Erasmus and Horizon, fantastic programs. And I think if we could begin to develop those kinds of links, those kinds of mutual commitments across the higher education world beyond Europe, that would take us forward in a practical way and Europe, in many respects, is ahead of the play in terms of moving beyond the, the colonial era, the Western-dominated era, towards a more plural space. Europe has done that within Europe, and I think the task now is to do it on a world scale. It's a very special place indeed. Thank you so much, Simon. That was Simon Marginson, Professor of Higher Education at the University of Oxford and Director of CGHE, the Centre for Global Higher Education. If you're keen to explore more, you'll find in our session notes a link to more information about his reflections on what a new definition of internationalization should take into account. So what's new at the EAIE? If you're looking for an opportunity to connect with your international education community while exploring a topic of considerable current concern, please consider joining us for the upcoming Community Moment webcast, taking place on February 10th. This first EAI webcast of 2023 is titled Making Ends Meet, Student Poverty in Europe, and I'll be joined by Matteo Vespa, President of the European Students' Union. The Community Moment webcast is a free event for everyone, and you can easily register by visiting our website, www.eaie.org. Registration for our Spring Academy training courses, which will run in February, March, and April, is now also open. Join expert EAIE trainers to gain practical skills and knowledge in such areas as supporting international students who are facing mental health challenges, implementing virtual exchange into the curriculum, or evaluating foreign credentials. As always, EAIE members benefit from a significant discount on our training courses, so be sure to secure membership before registering for any one of our training courses. 
Information on EAIE membership, group membership, and all our upcoming activities can of course be found on the EAIE website. All the past episodes of the EAIE podcast can also be found there, and our next episode will be available just next week. Thank you for listening and sharing and liking our work across your networks. Until next time, all good wishes to you from the EAIE.